From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. 30 years ago, HIV and AIDS were mysterious diseases with no cure. In 2019, people with those diagnoses can not only survive, but thrive. Here in Atlanta, one organization aims to educate communities about HIV AIDS. Sister Love Incorporated focuses on improving access to HIV AIDS prevention, self-help, and safe sex, especially in underrepresented communities. Tonight, Sister Love is honoring 20 women from across the country who are living with HIV at its 10th annual 2020 Leading Women Society Fundraising Awards Gala. Dezon Dixon-Diallo is the founder and president of Sister Love Incorporated. Joining me in the studio, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Cecilia Chung is an honoree at the gala. She's Senior Director of Strategic Projects and Evaluations at the Transgender Law Center. Joining us from San Francisco, Cecilia, thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. All right, I'm going to start with you, Dezon. HIV and AIDS initially associated with gay men. Why is Sister Love focused on women? Sister Love is focused on women because while it appears and while there was a suspicion that it was primarily gay men, women have actually been diagnosed and living with HIV as long. There are some women who are alive and doing very well today with a diagnosis over 30 years. So you are honoring these women who've been living with HIV. Absolutely. And have been for how long? So in this instance, every year we're looking at folks who have been living with HIV for 20 years or more. And that actually just started because we were looking at a way to celebrate our own 20th anniversary back in 2009. So now we actually have a class of women in the alumni group who are coming back who are also celebrating their 30 years, mm-hmm. just as we are this year. Uh, what an important message for people to hear. This idea that it's a death sentence is so outdated at this point. Exactly. And that these women that we honor every year, I consider them a very elite group of people. Because if you think about it, 17 plus million women on any given day on this planet are living with HIV. I can tell you there's not 25 to 30,000 who are doing every day what these amazing, incredible women are doing out front, living out loud, and working on the front lines to change it and make it better for somebody else. Mm-hmm. That, that's something to stop and say thank you for. And Cecilia, you are one of those women, currently the first person living openly with HIV and the first transgender woman to be chair of the San Francisco Human Rights Commission. When were you diagnosed? I was diagnosed with HIV around 1992, 1993. Well, as Dezon mentioned, not all people living with HIV are working to improve access and education of the virus as you've been. How did you get there? Oh, I think that it, I got the short straw. Um, no, I, I think that, you know, basically um, it, it's a lot of what Dezon had already said. The transgender community has been quite invisible like in the epidemic as well since the early years. And especially for transgender women, we experience the same type of stigma and discrimination and the same kind of shame that most women experience during that time. It's kind of different between how a man gets HIV and a woman gets HIV. And so um, we are being labeled as a lot of things and blame us on our promiscuity and really not able to recognize, you know, all the social determinants, you know, that drive the epidemic. So because of that, I became very vocal and really talk a lot about HIV as a consequence of the um, inequality and inequity that we experience in our lives. And sometimes it pairs with lots of violence in there. 
Yeah, so, yeah. I know that from your story, you've overcome discrimination, homelessness, brutal assault. How did these experiences inform your outreach now? It really helped build me up, I think, you know, and in terms of resilience and also um, open my eyes to the type of um, systemic violence and social stigma that transgender women of color face in the community. And so one of the things that um, we are doing right now is to really educate, you know, the community at large, you know, and the bigger audience, you know, about what it means to be a woman of color, what it means to be a transgender person living with HIV. And most importantly, like you all said, you know, it's no longer death sentence. Jason, I want to ask you about that. Sister Love was founded in 1989. There were very different protocols, treatments and perception and outcomes, certainly for people with HIV. How have the goals of Sister Love evolved in those years? That is such a great question. The goals have evolved in a couple of different ways. One is we have always worked at the intersections of sexual and reproductive health and rights and HIV. That doesn't mean that we always had a place to do that work because so many things are, are binary and are bifurcated. And there's sort of this false divide between the HIV work and the HIV community and what that's about and what reproductive health and rights is about. I'm a part of the founding of Sister Song as well, right? Reproductive justice is what we created as a way to look at the combination of social justice and sexual and reproductive rights. So the goals for us have changed only in the context of how those intersections have changed over time. Our goals have also changed in that we recognized a long time ago, and now it's just in our face with things like having the Affordable Care Act in front of us and uh, not yet accessible to all of us, that HIV in and of itself is not enough to address our social problems in our communities or our sexual and reproductive health challenges. So we've got to, our biggest goal right now is to de-exceptionalize HIV to, to a point where it is a part of all of the things that women are dealing with every day. So you mean that, yes. you know, all this funding is available for, for stopping the spread of HIV, exactly. but not necessarily for all those other parts. That right. What about? happens if you stop HIV, but it hasn't stopped the violence that actually perpetuates uh, HIV in some instances? What happens if stopping the transmission of the virus hasn't dealt with the stigma? So people living with HIV are still facing different oppressions every day. So it's not enough to use the, you know, as they say, a pill a day is not going to get us to the very end of this epidemic. And it's certainly not going to get to quality of life until we've dealt with some of the other inequities and inequalities that exist, not only in our health care, but in our society. Dazon Dixon Diallo, she's founder and president of Sister Love, the first women's HIV AIDS organization in the South. Sister Love is holding an event tonight to celebrate women living with HIV for a long time, 20 years or more. One of the honorees is Cecilia Chung. She's also with us on the line from San Francisco. This is the only one in the Southeast. Are there others throughout the country, Sister Love organizations? There are not other Sister Love organizations, but we certainly have Sister Love partners out there in the world. We are partnered in many different ways with groups. There's a national, of course, like the Transgender Law Center is one of our partner organizations. We also are 
partnered up with Positive Women's Network USA. We work very closely in a partnership called In Our Own Voice, the National Black Women's Reproductive Justice Agenda. So there are eight of us organizations that are black women-led that are also working across the spectrum of uh, black and brown queer issues. We're also working on reproductive health rights and justice, women's voting access. And we're also working around making sure that HIV and other sexual health and reproductive justice issues are completely integrated into all of those things. So when we're doing canvassing or when we're doing voter education, we're not only talking about the legislative issues that are currently afoot in D.C. or in our Georgia or in our state, but we're also talking about how these issues are intersecting with all of these other places that are voter issues, right? I mean, nobody recognizes the fact that people who are restricted to abortion in the state of Georgia right now could also be living with HIV. Mm-hmm. Well, you, so you're speaking to this is something that I think a lot of social service organizations are realizing now. You need not just to treat one thing, but the wraparound services. But you're also living in a time when there are uh, proposed laws like that in Georgia that is now uh, fighting its way through court or will be fighting its way through court. And there's not a lot of um, let's say, political power behind the idea that these are relevant issues. You know, maybe exactly. HIV is, you know, Atlanta, one of the cities where the spread of HIV is happening the fastest. Mm-hmm. But those other issues that you're talking about, those intersections are not something that a lot of legislators want to address. They don't want to address in some ways. But when you think about the fact that the state of Georgia, for example, has one of the highest, if not the highest, maternal mortality rate. They care about that. Right. We also have one of the highest infant mortality rates, which also is concomitant to our congenital syphilis rates, which are also really, really high. So they do care about some of these things. And, I, you know, I'm at a stage where I can do, you know, as I say, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So I know how to continue fighting for our rights around equity, equality, and access to all of our reproductive health services. And that is, of course, including our trans family in terms of their access to sexual and reproductive health services, which is a whole nother area. When you root what you're doing in the human rights framework, and then you surround that with this concept of reproductive justice, I know that I can sit at any table and find an issue that we're going to be common on somewhere, somehow in between. But where we can find commonplace, that's where we have to do our work. And I think that that is what really needs to be different. It's about calling in as opposed to calling out sometimes. Cecilia, you're a person whose career has been made in the human rights space. Many people who do live with HIV are not necessarily public with their personal diagnosis. Why did you decide to tell people that you're HIV positive? I think the reason why I decided to tell people that I'm HIV positive is kind of like by default because I wasn't getting the services that I need in the early days when I first tested HIV positive. I could not find you know, like a doctor that would not talk about me being transgender or talk about my lifestyles. And so, you know, that was actually my first fight is to make sure that we educate provider communities, you know, to be more gender affirming so that, you know, like we feel more welcome in order for us to be treated for the HIV that they're getting paid to treat. Well, Dezan, you have looked at a lot of research and and a lot of individual cases where people have gone public about their diagnosis. What is the effect of that? Yes. I'm actually glad Cecilia raised that because her own experience is exactly what's lived out in lots of folks' research. But one of the most recent pieces that I found most fascinating is the work of Celeste Watkins-Hayes, who tells us through her studies is that for women, especially black women and women of color, 
Disclosing their HIV when they are of low and no income is actually a benefit. We don't often see disclosing your status as a benefit in any of our lives. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at what we do have as social safety nets now through the Ryan White programs and other things, disclosure means that you can now access health care. The converse of that is what is also the possible experience of women who are middle and upper income, who have professional uh, positions in life or maybe status in their communities or in their families, that for them, and some of this is perception, but a lot of it is very real, that an HIV AIDS diagnosis in and of itself can actually reverse all of those benefits, all of that economic advancement, all of the status and positioning. We have women who were attorneys, who were lawyers, who um, were in the, you know, attorneys, uh, deputy attorneys general or MDs. That kind of diagnosis, whether you, uh, if you don't disclose, it also lends itself towards the depression, the trauma of it. Some people end up in substance use, which then by, you know, default, if you will, reduces your status because you probably lose your job if you don't lose your freedom. Right. Never mind the health outcomes. And never mind the health outcomes. So that's a real important thing when we're talking about disclosure and what that means to individuals, aside from the criminalization question, when we're talking Talking about women, we have to look at what that portends for them in the entire converse of their uh, in the the universe of their lives, and not just this one piece, which is that HIV diagnosis. To disclose is a very serious matter that goes beyond whether or not I want somebody to know my business. Well, I know you're looking far beyond that piece, and I really want to thank you for being here with us today. Thank you. Dazon Dixon Diallo, founder and president of Sister Love Incorporated. And Cecilia Chung, congratulations, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Cecilia Chung, she's an honoree at Sister Love, the 10th annual 2020 Leading Women's Society Fundraising Awards Gala. That's a mouthful. <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> couple there. extra syllables in there. <laughs> the event is honoring 20 women from across the country who've been living long-term with HIV. You can find more in the event at our website, gpbnews.org. Thank you.